I'd like to invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 and 13 and 14. There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. They are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed, children under a curse. Ah, Good morning, church family. Uh, if you're new joining us, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're doing a teaching series called Things That Are Hard To Do. This is something we've done a few times in the past. And uh, I was thinking while Pastor Jason was talking, things that are hard to do, host a student camp, uh, just period. That's, that's one in and of itself. Uh, today's topic <clears throat> and th- this, this whole series, you know, in this series we, we address difficult things, tough topics, whether it's tough topics to understand, things that are difficult to, to kind of reason with or to rationalize, uh, but we also sometimes deal with difficult emotional subjects, and that's what today we're talking about. Uh, we're going to deal with a teaching that I've called, It's Hard to Believe That Abuse Could Happen in the Church. And I, I want to just say a couple of things real quickly. First of all, for some of you who have experienced abuse, uh, this is something kind of like a, a trigger warning, if I can say that. It's a tough uh, topic to address, and I just want you to have uh, fair warning that we're going to deal with some things kind of head on here today that might stir you up, that might provoke you emotionally, and so I just want you to know that. But a question kind of came up like, why, why are we doing this? Why would we talk about this particular subject? And I, 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 I have kind of three reasons First of all, a subject like abuse, it's just unavoidable. We can't not talk about it. In fact, this came up because I believe it was three different members of our church suggested it uh, a few months ago when we were first kind of putting this out that we were going to do this teaching series in light of a very prominent uh, evangelical leader named Ravi Zacharias with his uh, sexual indiscretions, his abusive behavior towards a, a, not just a few, but a, it seems like a large number of women. That had kind of hit the public, uh, the public airwaves, so to speak. Uh, but other names like, like um, Bill Hybels over the last few years or Jerry Falwell Jr., or even, um, uh, he's a, I believe he's Catholic, uh, John Vanier, who 
has had a very prominent ministry towards disabled people. All of these men in positions of power who used their authority and their prominence to harm and to abuse, particularly women, but others in their sphere of influence. You can't avoid it. For, for us as Protestants, for us as you know, uh, uh, you know, good Bible-believing Protestants, this isn't just a Catholic church thing. You know, that 20 years ago when, when that really hit the, kind of the public news that the Catholic church was embroiled in all this scandal of abuse, it's not just a Catholic church thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's an us, it's all of us sort of a thing. So it's unavoidable. The second reason, though, why we want to address something like this is to do our very best to abuse-proof our church. We don't want that to happen here at Sound City Bible Church. And by God's grace, uh, to the best of my knowledge and our knowledge, this is not something that has taken place in the context of our church. But we don't know the future. We don't know what the future holds. And we want to do everything we can to lay a foundation of being an abuse-proof church. It's why we value our kids' ministry team. It's why we value the security team. It's why when we gather for public worship, we take things like our, our safety seriously. And so we want to offer this teaching today in light of that. And then the third reason, it's unavoidable, we want to abuse-proof our church, but I want us to be able to find hope and healing for those who have experienced abuse and hurt. We want to find hope and healing in Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's the reasons why we're diving into this topic today. Would you pray with me, Lord? I, I ask, I don't want to, I don't want to have to teach this, Lord. A lot of other things I'd rather talk about. But God, in your word, you show us that you are a protector. You are not only a protector, you're a provider. You're not only a protector and a provider, you're also an avenger. You are the one who brings justice to those who have been wronged. And so, Lord, today I ask and I pray that you'd help me to teach only that which is in line with the truth of your word. <clears throat> and I pray that you would give all of us soft and receptive hearts to receive this truth, that we might be the kind of church that follows in the way of Jesus not in the way of abuse and not in the way of power as the world uses it. So help us, Lord. It's, just, it's weighty. It's a very serious thing. Help me, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So by way of starting, I mean, it's, it's, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't need said, but abuse is a problem really throughout all of human history. It, there is no golden era. There's no, we just need to go back to this time or this time period or whatever. There, there's no golden era, whether it's in the United States or in all of world history. There really is no golden era. People, will, you know, historians will talk about the, the golden era of ancient Greece or whatever, and you can read about the golden era and the things that were legitimately good about ancient Greece or, or, or you know, whatever in America's past or, or any time period. But as you look at those time periods, you can also find all sorts of rampant abuse. So there is no golden era. There's no, like, we got to get back to this particular time point. There's only the world is a mess, and abuse is a huge problem in the world. And abuse is not just a problem in the world. Abuse is a problem in our society as the United States of America. One of the things that has helped me 
reckon with the, the societal upheaval that we have dealt with in our last couple of years as the USA is the idea that we're just now having to do a reckoning with centuries of abusive behavior, whether it's racial abuse of of African Americans, of black people, or, or racial abuse of Asians or, or Native Americans. We're, we're kind of dealing with the, the sins of the past that they're, they're coming to bear now, or, or <clears throat> abusive behavior towards women. The whole uh, Me Too movement is this secular, kind of popular attempt at dealing with something that's a really biblical idea that uh, particularly men should use their physical power and their physical uh, the presence to protect and to safeguard women, not harm and abuse women. So, so it's, it's not just a problem in the world, it's a problem in the United States of America. And then most painfully of all, it's a problem in the church. Abuse is a problem in the church of Jesus Christ. I hate it. It's not something that we want to have to deal with and to talk about, but it's something we have to. And it's, it's a problem. It's, it's tragic. But Jesus himself warned us In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus himself said, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. Jesus himself is warning us that there will be people who appear to be good, godly leaders, but they don't have the best interest of the people in mind. They don't care for the people. They're a wolf. I mean, think about a wolf. I, I, <laughs> I, uh, growing up in Alaska, this is going to sound like a joke, but it's not. I had some neighbors, they were like three houses down, that literally owned wolves. Uh, they, they owned wolves, and my dad was always like, don't go near their house, <laughs> because they owned, like, that just sounds like a weird Alaskan thing, like, oh, they owned wolves. Um, that's not very common, but these people did. And, but wolves, like, they just, they, they're vicious. They look like dogs. I saw a video, you know, one time on, on social media or whatever, I'm watching this video of wolves and my daughters, you know, my youngest daughter's like, oh, they're so cute. I want to pet them. Like, you don't go near a wolf. They're harmful. They're dangerous. They have this desire to harm and to take, not to give. So Jesus himself warned us, and Jesus himself, not only did he warn us, but, he, but he, he takes it very seriously. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus said this. He said to his disciples, offenses, or some translations render it temptations, they're, they're certainly going to come. Offenses and temptations, these stumbling blocks, they're going to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him, this person who brings a temptation, who brings a stumbling block, who brings harm to someone, if a millstone, uh, thousands of pounds of rock, were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So not only did Jesus warn us, Jesus said, this is serious. We have to deal with it head on because of Jesus. Now listen, all abuse is horrible. 
But abuse in the church is particularly heinous. It's particularly egregious because the church, the community of faith in Jesus Christ is supposed to be the place where we can find healing and restoration and hope and safety and comfort. Abuse is, it's a problem anywhere, but in the church, spiritual abuse cuts people off from the very thing that is supposed to be their source of healing and wholeness. It's connection to God. So we have to take this extremely seriously. <clears throat> I want to do a little bit of work briefly before diving back into Second Peter here, just defining our terms. And I want to start by saying that abuse is not the same thing as hurt. Abuse does not necessarily equal hurt. When we talk about abuse, we're talking about a certain type of hurt, but one of the things that happens in our culture is the word abuse, like many things, we kind of lump everything together. Oh, I've been abused, I've been abused. Well, hurt is not the same, uh, abuse is not the same thing as just hurt in general. And we know this for a couple of reasons. First of all, there is such a thing. <laughs> What's the saying? When you're on thin ice, you might as well dance. Like, uh, there is such a thing as good hurt. Some hurt, is in, particularly in the church context, is actually good. Psalm 141, verse 5. Let the righteous one strike me. It is an act of faithful love, has said. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Or Proverbs 21, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds, wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Jesus, in Luke chapter 17, said, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Or 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul, he, he instructs Timothy, who's a, a pastoral leader, he says, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. There, there, are, there are times in the church where a stern word of correction or rebuke is needed, and it is a good, it is a good thing for a leader or a faithful brother or sister or a friend to issue a word to another brother or sister, someone who's in the faith, someone who's in the church, someone who's given their life to Jesus, and to say, you need to stop it. You are being sinful. And that word can be delivered with a, a type of sharpness, a type of, of, it hurts. I mean, why does the book of Proverbs say it's a wound? So if you're looking for a church where hard words are never said and you just only ever feel good all the time, look for a different church than this one. Because to be a biblical church means sometimes we will say difficult things to each other that doesn't, it doesn't feel pleasant, but it's good. A physical therapist 
if you've ever had like an accident or an injury or something and you go to a physical therapist, those people, you could walk out of there feeling that's an evil person because they just hurt me all the time. A massage therapist. You ever had a massage? Like you've been like, like low back pain or something? Go, ah, it hurts. But they're doing it for good. Even all the talk about COVID vaccinations or whatever. The lady who did my vaccination shot, she must have been like a professional dart thrower. Like she was, like just, it hurt. But it was for good. So there is a place for a type of pain in the church that is intended for good. Now that's not an excuse to be sinful or just harsh or cruel, but we have to talk about, when we talk about abuse, we have to be very clear with how we're defining our terms. Some hurt is good. The, the second reason why we know that abuse is not the exact same as, as hurt is there is such a thing as hurtful or wrong hurt, but it's still not abusive. I was thinking about, like, in, in Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter about people who are, like, quarreling and fighting, and they're they, they, they're putting stumbling blocks in front of each other. They're, they're hurting each other, uh, not in a good way, not in a loving sort of a way, but because of their own selfishness. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, it's the passage we read every single Sunday in relationship to celebrating uh, communion, the Lord's table together. And it talks about people like pushing and shoving to the front of the line or eating and drinking more than their fair share. They're hurting each other, But it's not abusive. People can hurt each other in a good way. People can hurt each other in a wrong way, but it's still not abusive. Even in uh, marriages, oftentimes have this conversation with people who are married where a spouse hurts the other one. And in our society, in our culture, we're often very quick to label it as abuse, but that's not a careful well-thought-out label to use. It could potentially be very damaging. Oh, my my spouse is abusing me. No, your spouse is hurting you, and you're hurting them, and there's there's an unhealthy dynamic there. Here's here's what abuse... here's, Here's how we really need to think about abuse. Abuse has to do with a misuse of power. When we talk about abuse... We need to talk about power. I had a phone conversation uh, two weeks ago with a counselor in our area, someone who actually has served our church and uh, was able to walk this through. And, and she, she was uh, very helpful to me and, and provided some really good insights. And I was able to bounce my ideas off of her and get some feedback. But she pointed me to a, a book by a, an author and a, a counselor, Diane Langberg, and I've linked to this book up on our website. I, I really highly recommend it. I, I got through about half of the book this last week. Uh, I haven't finished it yet, but I intend to. Diane Langberg talks about this, though. She says power, the book is called Redeeming Power. She says this. She says, power can be a source of blessing. But when it is abused, untold damage to the body and name of Christ, often in the name of Christ, is done. For the sake of that body and that wonderful name, I believe we need to wrestle with the issue of power and understand how it can be used for healing or harm, for good or evil. Now, power 
is inherent in being human. Even the most vulnerable among us have power. Think about, uh, <laughs> think about you know, a, a newborn infant. You'd think like the most powerless being in all of humanity, a newborn infant. But when they cry, guess what? The parents are getting up in the middle of the night to go into the room and to, to feed or to change a diaper or to do whatever. Even a, a brand newborn infant has a measure of power to affect others. How we use this power, how we use it or withhold it, determines our impact on others. So when we talk about abuse, we're talking about a use of power, authority. That's why, um, you know, kind of different types of abuse, you know, physical abuse is someone using their physical power to harm someone who is more physically vulnerable. Sexual abuse is someone using physical, you know, bodily power to uh, bring unwanted sexual touch or contact to someone. But those, those kind of uh, traditional perspectives of abuse, or those traditional, I should say, definitions of abuse, are not the totality, right? There are other ways that we have power. There's institutional power. There's economic power. There's a, a personality or, 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 or just the, the, the force of your personhood. People can charm people. That's why we talk about things like emotional abuse, which is a very slippery category. It's a very, it's a very hard thing to define, even for um, you know, any of the, just kind of the mainstream sciences. People have a hard time defining emotional abuse. But we know that within these contexts, people can misuse power to harm others. And yes, in the church, there is power that comes from being in a position of leadership and authority. So I want to go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter, he's writing this letter encouraging people to stick to the reliable truth, stay with Jesus, trust the, the, the witness that we said. And actually, it's only, it's only three chapters long, and the entire second chapter is devoted to decrying these false prophets that Jesus warned about, these wolves that come in. Let me read this with you here. So he says, Peter, again, this is the Apostle Peter, one of the closest friends of Jesus. He says, there were, indeed, false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Prophets, teachers, this, this idea of someone who speaks and uses their words to influence others. They will bring in destructive heresies. Now, this word heresies is super interesting. In the Greek, I mean, it is just a Greek word. It's, it's heresies. Um, when, when we think of heresy, we probably, at least for myself, maybe, maybe you think the same way, it's, we think about wrong ideas, right? Heresy is wrong teaching. But the word heresy in the New Testament, is most commonly translated as a faction or a division or a sect. It, 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 it's like in the, in the New Testament, the idea of heresy has a little bit less to do with the content of the teaching and more to do with this idea of carving off a group of people uh, that, that, that 
uh, are, are, are distinct. In, in fact, the apostle Paul uses the word heresy, the Greek word heresy, when he says, I was a member of the Pharisee party. That word that's translated as party in the book of Acts, we just finished Acts, when he says that, that word party, it's actually the word heresy. He says, I was part of the Pharisee heresy. Like it's, not only does it rhyme, but like that, that could make a good band name, I guess. The, the, the Pharisee heresy, it just, it means that this is my group that I belong to. So again, when we, when we see this word, yes, it has to do with teachings, but it, it has to do a little bit more with the idea of a faction or a sect or, or a division. So he says these false teachers are going to show up and they're going to bring in a, a, a faction. They're going to bring in a division based on their teaching, even denying the master who bought them and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways. Isn't that just tragic? Many are going to follow them and they're depraved. And the way of the truth will be maligned because of them. I, I am just, that verse just... I hate that. People like Ravi Zacharias and John Vanier and Jerry Falwell Jr. have now put me and us as Christians in a negative light because they have misused and abused the body of Christ and the way of truth is now maligned because of them. I hate that. But it's not some new problem we're dealing with. It's been around for almost 2,000 years. They will exploit you in their greed. The word there, exploit, uh, is a, it's an interesting Greek word. It's a less common Greek word. It actually is used for like traveling and trading. It's the same word that's used in the book of James chapter 4 when he says, you know, you're going to go to such and such a t- uh, town and spend some time there and, and trade and, and make a profit. It kind of almost feels like um, exploit, you know, exploit is like a technical translation. When you take into context the idea of traveling, it feels like they're going to take you for a ride. They will take you for a ride in their greed with made-up stories. Skipping down to verse 10. These are bold, arrogant people. They're not afraid to slander the glorious ones, these supernatural beings that God has placed in a position of authority. The sons of God, you might remember we've talked about this in Job and in Daniel. However, angels who are greater than these people in might and power don't bring a slanderous charge against these glorious ones. This kind of this is a total there's a whole different sermon here, but like kind of different rankings and hierarchies between the spiritual beings, the angels being messengers or servants, kind of a lower ranking versus these glorious ones. Like the angels, they don't even bring a slanderous charge against these glorious ones before the Lord, but these people, like irrational animals, they're they're dealing with some specific teaching, right? Some specific heresy, some specific uh, ideology, that had to do with supernatural beings. They said, these people, they're like irrational animals. They're creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed. They slander what they do not understand. And in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight 
again, just thinking about some of these prominent names, men who have misused their power and abused their power, and then you look back, like, they were talking about it the whole time. They were posting things on Instagram. They were, they weren't hiding it. It was right there. Why didn't we see it? Why didn't we want to see it? They are spots. I mean, you, they are spots and blemishes. You get the sense Peter's not a fan of these people. Delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. This unstable. It's like people who are already kind of wobbly. They, they, they can pick them out. They can find them. Children under a curse. They've gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Basor, who loved the wages of wickedness. You go back into the Old Testament, it's in the book of Numbers, Balaam, this, this strange story of a man who was a, a, a prophet of sorts, and he, he misused his power, he was trying to, and then the Lord shut him down. There's a whole story with a talking donkey, so like Shrek stole that from the book of Numbers. Uh, but it's a, it's a strange story. Go read it, I encourage you. But he says, he loved the wages of wickedness, but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. He uses that as an illustration. These people, back to the, the point Peter's making, these people are springs without water, mists, driven by a storm. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. By uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery. People who have barely escaped from those who live in error, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. We can see in this passage, although the word abuse, as we define it, isn't necessarily used, we can see a misuse of power to get three things. The first thing is to get financial gain. There's a misuse of power for financial gain. Verse 3, exploiting you in greed. Verse 13, they're feasting. It's taking, right? Feasting, living large. Verse 14, their hearts are trained in greed. Verse 15, the wages of wickedness. The second thing that these abusive leaders are doing, they're using their power to get sexual pleasure. Verse 2, their depraved ways. In, in, In a lot of translations, it's translated as sensuality. Verse 13, they're carousing in broad daylight. Verse 14, eyes full of adultery. Verse 18, fleshly desires and debauchery. And then, lastly, they use their power to just get more power. Verse 1, this, this idea of like a sect, a heresy, of a faction, a group that I can be in charge of, I can control, I can make do what I want. 
Verse 10, they're bold, they're arrogant. Verse 19, they're promising freedom. Come with me. They're using their power to gain more power. That's the big three. Money, sex, and power. It happens broadly in society, and it happens in the church. It also plays out at three different levels. And you can see hints of this here in Second Peter, but really kind of zooming out to the broader biblical perspective, it plays out at the individual level. When we think about abuse, we often think about an abusive individual harming another person. And that is true. A person, an individual, using their God-given power and their position of authority to harm someone else. But it also plays out, not just at the individual level, it also plays out at the institutional level. The institutional level meaning an institution or an organization can perpetuate abuse, and there's a dynamic there that where it's kind of a, 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 a dance. In fact, uh, sometimes certain groups, and we've seen this in churches, like certain things that the abusive leader provides, and so they're willing to tolerate or put up with the abusive behavior because they like what is provided. Chuck DeGroat is a seminary professor and an author. He wrote a book on narcissism in the church, and he has this, this quote. So sadly, in recent years, we've witnessed too many instances of charismatic Christian leaders gaining a massive following, both within the church and on social media, only to be exposed as manipulative, abusive, and dictatorial, like a dictator. Gerald Post, he quotes, who's a psychologist, argues that a mutually reinforcing relationship exists between leader and follower. The leader relies on the adoration and respect of his followers. The follower is attracted to the omnipotence and charisma of the leader. The leader uses polarizing rhetoric that identifies an outside enemy, bringing together leader and followers on a grandiose mission. The followers feed off the leader's certainty in order to fill their own empty senses of self. Ouch. So when we talk about abuse, yes, there's an individual level, but there's also an institutional level. And there's actually even a third level, which is the level of the invisible. The supernatural. That as Christians, even if our culture makes fun of us for believing it, we believe that we exist in a world where spiritual forces are at work. And there are spiritual forces. I mean, all this language in Second Peter 2 about the, the, the glorious ones and angels and all this sort of stuff, again, that's a whole different sermon to be taught at some point. But the idea is that there are spiritual forces that hate image bearers of God, and bring deceptive philosophy and harmful patterns that people buy into. We're in a spiritual war. Abuse is spiritual warfare on the name of Christ. 
So we have to look at all three of these levels, the individual level, the institutional level, and even the invisible level. So then you look at a, a problem like this. I've spent, you know, whatever, 25 minutes talking about this problem. So what's the solution? Well, there's a couple false hopes that, that show up. One false hope, one false solution is just get rid of all power. We're done with it. Power to the people, right? You know, for, forget the man. We don't need the man. We're just going to flatten everything out. We're going to do pure democracy. We're going to do pure, you know, congregationalism. We're just going to get rid of all power. We don't have any authority. We don't have any leadership. The, the problem is that's literally impossible. It's literally impossible because God is powerful and human beings are made in his image and likeness, there will always be power. So even in like, imagine a church that was like the most congregational. Everyone has an equal vote. This is a church of 300 people and everyone has an equal vote. There are people in that congregational church that just wield more power because they're stronger personalities or they're smarter or they're more articulate or whatever. Like it's literally impossible you could go down the kind of, if, you know, the socialist dream of just get rid of all power and everything is shared. History would tell us that in every single one of those types of environments, politically or, or in church or whatever, someone's going to figure out a way to use that power. You literally can't get rid of power. Another false hope, though, is, well, okay, I'm, I, I know that people are out there using, misusing power, so I'm just going to only trust myself and my own power. I'm going to cut everyone else off. I'm going to not trust. I'm not going to go to church. I won't be a part of a church. I won't submit to leadership. I won't become a member. I won't do any, you know, sort, sort of thing. Uh, self-protection, self-direction. The problem is, though, you have in your own heart the makings of abusive power. Diane Langberg again writes, she says, most humans intend to use their power for good. They want to earn more money, grow the church, protect good programs, or preserve a good reputation. Adam and Eve told themselves they were pursuing a greater likeness to God. Just make a cup of tea, go for a walk, chew on that one for a while. We're going to be like God. They seemed blind to the fact that they were pursuing a seemingly good goal through utterly ungodly means, and we do the same thing. We say we are using our power to seek likeness to God, when in fact, what we are doing looks nothing like Him. It's not difficult to be seduced into such thinking. A number of years ago, Seven years ago, exactly. Part of a church where uh, the primary preaching pastor misused his power to hurt a lot of people. And I didn't see it early on. I didn't understand it. And during that time, a lot of people were not only hurt by him, but then we're hurt in the fallout of his decisions and hurt in the fallout of just the whole breaking up of the church. Sound City Bible Church is birthed out of that past of an abusive leader. 
during that time, there was a book that came out right around that same time by a, a man named Andy Crouch. He, he works for Christianity Today. And he wrote a book called Playing God. Uh, and then the subtitle is called Redeeming God's Gift of Power. And I remember reading that book back then, and it, it ministered to my heart in a, a really profound way. Because I think myself and a lot of other people, as a result of, of going through that situation, uh, were kind of tempted into those false hopes of just, just get rid of all power and forget it all, and we don't need anybody in charge, and, and all of the, the kind of, um, I don't know, quick and easy sort of answers. But Andy Crouch wrote this book called Redeeming Power. I've also linked to it on the website. It's very, very good. Andy Crouch's book is like the big picture theoretical, and then Diane Langberg's is like kind of the like boots on the ground practical as a, as a counselor. But Andy Crouch, he wrote, he wrote this back then, I think it was in 2015, 2014 or 15. And I remember these words ministering to me. He says, sometimes admittedly, it can seem that the whole history of power is one long story of perversion and betrayal. Like the whole thing is just, just stupid. Politics and churches and all, just, you kind of walk away with this like soured feeling like everybody's just, awful. Just burn the whole thing to the ground. In fact, he says, if I were not a follower of Jesus Christ, I might believe that was the deepest truth about power. I might follow Nietzsche, Foucault, and all their disciples into the abyss of cynicisms, seeing every human story as a power play. I have come to believe, though, that the only way to understand power's abuse is to begin with its proper use. When we begin with the best kinds of power, we learn some important truths about power that we would never learn even from the most penetrating critique. It's not enough to just sit around and critique power, people misusing power. We actually need to look at something more real than that, more real than the critique. Most of all, we learn something that criticism will never teach us what to hope for. Hope is stronger than fear. If power is dangerous, and it is, our hearts will be most prepared to resist its dangers if they have been shaped by hope. Let me just, if, if power is dangerous, I have to read that again. If power is dangerous, it is, our hearts will be most prepared to resist its dangers if our hearts have been shaped by hope. Hope And friends, that is what is missing in so much of our popular cultural conversations about abuse and misuse of power is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about this. Think about true hope in Jesus. Think about the idea that Jesus came in vulnerability. One of the most profound verses in the entire Bible might be in Luke chapter 2 when the angels speak to the shepherds and say, you will find him wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The God who put the stars in place. The God who shaped the mountains, who filled the seas. Now, just an infant vulnerable, humanly helpless, clinging to his mother, Mary, nursing at her breast, utterly dependent. That's our God. That's our Savior, that he came in vulnerability. 
And throughout his earthly life, Jesus protected the vulnerable. I think of the story in the Gospel of John of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Convenient that they didn't bring the man who was also caught in the act of adultery. Takes two to tango. And the book of Deuteronomy specifies that both offending parties should face condemnation and judgment. But no, they just brought the woman. And they said, this woman has been caught in a very act of adultery. What should we do? And Jesus used his power, his authority, his popularity to defend the vulnerable and to offer a word of pardon and forgiveness and redemption and to tell her, don't go and do this again. Go and sin no more. Like, leave that lifestyle behind. He protected the vulnerable. Even something as, you know, like Zacchaeus. He's a, he's a short guy. The Bible makes a point that he's physically, like, not imposing. And Jesus ministers grace to him. Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus, the, the, the track record. Children coming to Jesus. Let the children come to me, Jesus says. Do not refuse them. Jesus used his power and his authority during his earthly life to protect the vulnerable. And Jesus went to the cross and he died at the hands of abusive, powerful religious and political leaders. The powers of Rome and the powers of Jerusalem conspired together to put a crown of thorns on his head, to whip his back into shards and just ribbons of flesh, to nail him to a cross, naked, vulnerable, and exposed so that we might receive forgiveness and healing and cleansing and washing. And then Jesus rose from the dead. And he ascended in power. And right now today, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Jesus didn't reject power. Jesus took it all to himself. That verse in Philippians 2 that we love, that he, you know, considering Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, took on the nature of a servant. And he was obedient even to death on a cross. But then he was resurrected and ascended. And now God's given him the name that is above every other name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether it's above the earth or on the earth or below the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, make no mistake, Jesus now has all power. And when we look at his life and we look at what he did, we know that we can trust him to use that power for our good. We can trust Jesus to use his power not to abuse us. He's the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. That's still a position of power, right? You think, oh, he's the good shepherd. That's the shepherd's in charge of the sheep. Like the analogy works and, and don't stretch it to mean something it doesn't mean. Jesus still has power and authority. He's still in charge. The biblical answer, the Jesus answer to abuse is not get rid of all power, but run to Jesus and learn his way of power. 
I want to offer us a few quick thoughts in closing here. How do we, how do we safeguard our church? How do, we, how do we pursue Jesus in all of this? Four things. First one is, is just simply pursuing Jesus. We have to pursue Jesus. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. It protects us from being abused, and it protects us from abusing. Think about, um, it's interesting, you know, uh, women who have been abused or in a, an abusive relationship, oftentimes you'll hear them say things like, well, he, but I know he loves me. I know he loves me, but he does X, Y, or Z. And the problem with that is it's not a Jesus definition of love. It feels like love. It looks like love, but it's not actually a Jesus-like definition of love. Churches, well, I, you know, the pastor, you know, the, the abusive pastor is blah, 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 but, you know, he, he's so good at X, Y, and Z. Such a good preacher. Such a good leader. Jesus is our definition. If we do not pursue Jesus, if we do not fix our eyes on Jesus, we're going to end up having a wrong definition of power, a wrong definition of authority, and we make ourselves more vulnerable to being abused and hurt. But it also protects us from misusing our power. We remember that Jesus has all power. Jesus has all authority. As a pastor in this church, I have some authority, but he's the chief shepherd. The more that I can fix my eyes on Jesus and remember that whatever power, authority I and any of the other elders have, it's all derivative. It all comes from Jesus. If I can fix my eyes on him, that's the starting point of of not misusing power. Number two, we, we, we want to practice transparency. The more transparency, the more safeguarded we are as a church against abuse. Chuck DeGroat again writes this. He says, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, I like Charles Spurgeon, once said, appear to be what thou art. Tear off thy masks. And that's not a COVID thing. It's just a... It's a a problem in the church long before COVID of wearing a mask and a false front. The church was never meant to be a masquerade. Stand out in thy true colors. And then DeGroote says, I suspect the Prince of Preachers didn't own a, a, a diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, but he hints at an important dynamic, hiddenness. You ask why churches are breeding grounds for abuse and cover-ups? And I'll offer an epidemic of hiding It's as old as Genesis 3, so we shouldn't be surprised. Transparency, church. Openness. And that starts with you and starts with me. Number three, protection of the vulnerable. It's a really interesting thing that when people who have been abused find the courage to speak up about their abuse, one of the more common things that happens is people default to protection of the one who is in power. False accusations can happen. I actually walked through uh, one pastoral scenario about a decade ago in which some really terrible accusations were made by a wife against her husband, and after a period of about 18 months of walking through it, come to find out she had made the whole thing up. So I know, that, I know that false accusations can happen. But do you know what happens more often than false accusations? Abuse. 
So false accusations can happen, yes. And we have to do due, due diligence and, and all that sort of stuff. But abuse happens a lot more often. And so we have to have a posture of saying we want to protect the vulnerable. This is why we do things like a security team for our, our children's ministry. When we, when we come together in person next Sunday and as we start to regather and, and, and head into hopefully brighter days ahead, some of you need to join the security team. You have a, a heart for protection. It might seem mundane. It's like, oh, it's just a church in the suburbs. What's going to happen? Well, who knows? Being vigilant, being on guard to protect the vulnerable. And then number four, have patience until the end. I, I wish that I could stand up here and say, we're going to make the, the most abuse-proof church possible. We're going to make an abuse-proof society. I want to do everything I can in my power, my power for our church as well as for our area. But history tells us that harmful people will likely find a way to do harmful things. And Peter reminds us that God will judge them at the end. And apart from repentance, they will face damnation. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about the subject of hell. When we get there, keep this sermon in mind because a lot of people don't like to talk about hell. When you think about someone who would misuse their authority and power to sexually abuse or to harm someone, yeah, hell starts to make a lot more sense. So have patience until the end. One day, Jesus will return. Every eye will see, every ear will hear, every knee will bow, and we'll confess that Jesus is Lord and he's in charge. And for us as Christians, we have a bright and a glorious future, a hope for the future can't be taken away by any abuser. Jesus is our hope. And as we come to the table of the Lord, let's go meet with our good shepherd right now, understanding that he suffered abusive leadership at the hands of Jerusalem and Rome so that we might be forgiven and redeemed. Lord, I pray that you would use this time for all of us to look at ourselves and how we use our power, how we use our authority. May we be more like you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.